Is that, I haven't sung that before. Wow. Have you done that here before? Oh, so good. I am concerned that words like amazing lose their power for us, even when we sing it in Amazing Grace. But you know, on the internet, it, every day is a new amazing video of a cat doing something. And, and, and <laughs> when, you use, when you use amazing so often and so cheaply that you can really lose the power of that word, that amazing grace, what an amazing mystery that we're, we're befuddled at the grace of God. And uh, I would hope every time we gather like this that we regain, recapture, renew uh, a sense of the amazing grace of God and, and what he's done for us in the gospel. We should, we should all walk around having TMJ problems with our mouths just wide open, you know, having jaw problems because we're just walking. That's what Christians should look like. Like that. We just can't believe what we've come to understand in the gospel. And, and there's a danger in getting used to it, isn't there? You, you know the words, you know the answers, and so it can easily become something you take for granted. And I would pray we would, we would every time we gather, have a renewed sense of amazement at, at what God's done for us. Um, what a wonderful time of corporate worship we just had together, and we'll continue now as we go to the Word. Would you open your Bibles to Mark 7? I have loved this tour through Mark. I have been so blessed by this. I've known Jesus as long as I can remember. I I used to make up that I came to Christ at 6, but I was just making that up. I I can't really remember a, a time uh, there, there had to be some time early on when I came to understand Jesus as a little kid, uh, as my Savior, as the one who gave himself for me. But I can't remember a specific time. My mom read the Bible to me a lot. But, but this, this tour through Mark we've been doing has been wonderful for my soul. I feel like I'm being reacquainted with the Savior as we've gone through this, this gospel. And once again, amazed at him. He is just amazing. And I I love the glimpse we get of him again today. Uh, We've been preaching through Mark, and Mark, as you may have heard already from us, a third of Mark is miracle. One third of this gospel is Jesus demonstrating his power over darkness, over sin, over evil, over the demonic, over disease, and demonstrating his kingship, his messiahship, that he's on this search and rescue mission of lost people and of a lost creation. And so his miracles are a display of that. Here in chapter 7, we get a shift now and we get teaching. And Mark doesn't neglect teaching, even though he puts such an emphasis on miracles in his content. But here we have a shift where we get some real teaching of Jesus as the the focal point of what's going on here. So Mark 7, I'm going to read the first uh, section of it, and then I, I want to talk together about what's especially important in here, and and then we'll we'll preach. Uh, let's pray as we go to the Word. Lord, we are grateful for Your Word. We are grateful for how amazing uh, Your grace is. We're grateful for uh, the light we find here, the truth, the life. Lord, we pray that most of all we would find Jesus and know him better, and be more deeply amazed uh, by him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 
Mark 7, beginning of verse 1. Now when the Pharisees, this religious group that prided themselves on law-keeping and knowledge of the law, now when the Pharisees gathered to him some of the scribes, who had come from Jerusalem. Ah, it seems that Jesus is causing problems to the point where the Pharisees in this area of Galilee aren't enough to bring persecution on Jesus. And they send a little envoy up from Jerusalem, uh, at least a day's journey up there, to really scrutinize Jesus and give him some more pressure. So this group comes from Jerusalem, we find, of religious leaders to hassle Jesus. So they come from Jerusalem. And they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands who were defiled, that is, unwashed. So they're not focusing their attack on Jesus right now, but his followers. The disciples are what they have a concern about. And it's that they're eating with defiled hands, as they define defiled, unwashed. And then we get this little explanatory note here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, very important term there, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So we get this explanation, obviously, for Gentiles in the audience of this gospel. So it's, it's a diverse audience. There are no doubt Jews there, too. But for an explanation for Gentiles, we get this description of these traditions of the elders. So there are these scribal traditions, these rabbinic traditions that people are now required to follow. Let's keep going. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way, a splendid way, you could translate it. You have just a, a wonderful way, don't you, of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down 
and many such things you do. Whew. All right. What do you think? Let's talk. Uh, I would love to hear what, what struck you as particularly important you wouldn't want us to miss. I always am blessed when we do this. I, I'm encouraged. I get insight. So uh, this is for me as much as anybody. So uh, what do you think? What struck you as we read through this about Jesus, about what he's teaching here, about uh, what's obviously going on among these people? What, what do you think is important? What do you want to make sure we don't miss as we preach through this? Anybody? Kenny. Maybe it was just what you read. Is that a lot of a fine way of rejecting? Yeah. Just the thought was that we can make direct rejection of God's law look pious. Oh, yeah. I think you know, a fine way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, hey, hey, good job. Hey, nice. nice. Yeah, real good. Hey, you guys are doing an amazing job at being bankrupt. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, it, 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 it's biting the way Jesus says that. Excellent display here, right? It's almost like he's saying, way to go with your, with your empty religion. Excellent job. Yeah, it's, it's really biting. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. What's the commandment of God? Because they, it was so interwoven. Yes, yes. Yeah. Right. It's Joyce. You said. Yes. yes, Joyce. Yes, it's so true. By this time, these rabbinic traditions had become so uh, woven into the Word of God, the commandments of God Himself, that that they couldn't even tell them apart. And what happened is what often happens, the traditions of, of just teachers and men in, in tradition just actually start gaining greater focus and prominence. Not only are they held equally, eventually the traditions of men become even a greater priority. Yeah, and even weeding them out saying, oh, what's the difference? We're not sure what the difference is. Yeah, exactly. Great insight, Joyce. Yeah, what else? What else is important here? Yeah, Andy. Ceremony, yeah. which nowadays is still a great part of our culture and antibacterial and spray huh. that on. Yeah. Yeah. I heard it's even more. So, and, um, yeah. It's this, it is a good thing, and, and I think it's even commanded back in the Old Testament for our physical protection. And, yeah. But it became something more because of the hearts and motives, and that's kind of intriguing to me look into the Pharisees and scribes and who's doing the right thing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, when, when you read the, the washings, the, the cleansing ceremonies, and compare them to what we have here, what, what seems to have happened was God's taking these, what seems to us is odd, so it, it, there is a hygienic element to this, but the primary purpose is to emphasize through all sorts of rituals and practices in the sacrificial system our dirtiness in approaching a perfectly clean God, right? This perfectly holy God 
you don't saunter into his presence. These things can seem like such weird things when you read the Leviticus. Have you ever seen somebody become a Christian and you give them a Bible and you're, you want to say, but don't read Leviticus for like two years at least, right? And, and you want to, and if you do, make sure I'm there to help you, all right? So, um, and you're sort of afraid of it, but century after century of all of these rituals in the midst of approaching God are to emphasize exactly what we've been emphasizing this morning so powerfully, our sinfulness, that we are dirty. We, we are in need of cleansing, and, and we need to have these lessons, these displays of the need for us to become ritually cleansed when we approach God. Now, these cleansings were for the priests offering sacrifices. What, what seems to have happened was they spread well beyond just the priests to everybody. Now everybody needs to do them. And not only these ritual cleansing is prescribed in the Bible, but now when you come back from Stater Brothers, you need to go through this whole cleansing thing again. So every time you go to the marketplace, you come home and you need to do it again. And it's not just the ritual cleansings as we find in Leviticus, but it's the cups, the bowl. Everything needs a whole uh, redo every time you come home from the grocery store. And, and now life is becoming incredibly complex and they're missing the point of the whole law. They're missing the point of the cleansings in the first place. And they're actually undermining the reason for the cleansings. The whole sacrificial system is based on our inability to cleanse ourselves. And even though we go into the presence of God with these cleansings, we depend on him to do it. And so, so what they've done is heaped on these burdens, these layers of traditions on top of the law of God that has a very good purpose of teaching us our need for cleansing and the holiness of God. And and I think they're well-intentioned. Yeah, Andy got me going there a little bit. So let me just preach a little and then we'll return to, to this. That, it's just a good time to do it since you brought it up. Andy. Yeah. Um, it, I think it's well-intentioned when it starts. You've got the law. Don't break the law. And so they, they do what's called uh, erect a fence around Torah. So you've got the law, whatever it may be, even if it's don't lie or don't commit adultery or keep the Sabbath or whatever, and you keep, you put a fence around it. You say, well, if I don't want to break that, let me distance myself from that and take a step back and put a, a fence around Torah. And then you put a fence around the fence so you don't go through the fence that gets you to breaking the law. And then you put a fence around the fence around the fence. And before you know it, you've got layer after layer of fences around Torah, of things that keep you from actually getting to breaking the law. And so I think it's well-intentioned when it starts. But what ends up happening is pride gets injected in this. And then you take pride in the fences and in the fence keeping to the point where you can't even tell the difference between the fences and the law anymore. And... And now, making sure you're aware of all the fences and that you're keeping all the fences becomes a source of pride for these leaders and a burden they're heaping on other people. And so it's just this horrible distortion of what God's wanting to get at with this law that should lead us to freedom, and it leads to burdens. It's just a, a tragic result that is, is obviously got Jesus ticked off. I remember I went to a paper at a theology conference. Best title of any paper I've ever heard at a theology conference. It was on, on how you know a teaching of the Bible is really important. And this was, this was the title of the paper. Um, uh, weighty doctrine, and it was in the New Testament, weighty doctrine or when Jesus and the apostles got really angry, <laughs> right? 
So when you see Jesus or the apostles getting ticked off, you know it's important. And it's important when it's inhibiting the ability people have to come before God. So imagine not only the burdens and the inability this creates for Jews, how about Gentiles who don't even have these laws in the first place? And now Jesus is very concerned about them. And as we can see, the Gentiles are listening to this. And so he's saying to them, don't keep people from God. The, the whole thing is to get them to God. And you're, you're making it do the opposite. So stop it. And, and he's obviously angry about this. Yes. All right. Other thoughts? Thanks, Andy, for getting me launched there. Uh, anything else? Julie. Right, 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 right. Yes. Set them up. Oh, that's a great quote. Write that one down. Write that one down. (laughs) If you're taking notes, that's a keeper right there. All the fences kept them from being able to recognize the keeper of the law, Jesus, right? Yeah, the, the, the one who actually fulfills the law for us. You're so focused on you and yourself keeping the fences that you can't see when Jesus comes and fulfills the law itself. Because he comes blasting away at all those traditions and doesn't keep those traditions. So he seems like a bad guy when he's actually the only one actually keeping the law. Good. What a great. Yes. Beautiful. What else? Other thoughts? Yeah. So it's, I love that Mark doesn't beat around the bush. He just gets to the right? <laughs> Yeah. And this whole <coughs> seems like it's about the heart. Yes. 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 And you talk about reading Leviticus and not having new Christians. Yeah. But really, the whole point from the inception of the law has been where's your heart? Yes. You know, it's all about doing these things. Right. And the, the, the priests and the prophets throughout history have been constantly going back to check, you know, where is your heart at? Yeah. yeah. Here, here he's quoting Isaiah. Yeah. Hundreds of years later. He's right. Saying, Right, 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 yeah, yes, yeah, and, and that doesn't mean there's just some sort of in a vacuum spiritual thing not connected to what we're doing, but that is the foundation he's constantly trying to make us think about, and the prophets are just like you're saying, well, th- this is the consistent theme, and, and this isn't a New Testament thing, as you're pointing out, this is a very consistent theme throughout the Bible, that it's all to get at the state of your heart before God. That's what this is all about. Good. Other thoughts? Let's. Uh, I'm thinking this, this demonstrates how desperately we need the Son of God to be our teacher yeah. because even the, the grace of the law revealed in our, I guess, in our godlessness yeah. still uh, leave and stray yeah. even when given by God some form of knowledge of Yes. And then I think it's the second thing I'm thinking is it turns out, at least right here, that Jesus starts to give us knowledge of God by destroying false versions. Yes, 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 yes. So he's not delivering the positive vision yet, but he's trying to get obstacles out of the way. Yes. So, so just kicking over idols is a necessary part of establishing the truth. Yeah. And that's a weird part. One of the strangest things about the way our society increasingly thinks is 
that, that you can believe one thing and not then necessarily disbelieve the other, the opposite of it, right? To believe always inherently involves disbelief, right? The more I believe something, the more I disbelieve the opposite. But our society increasingly has this idea that you can believe something and not necessarily disbelieve the opposite. It's a bizarre, it, it's really bizarre, but it's true that idols must go when the truth is erected, yes? It, we're inherently, as my friend Jerry Root likes to say, Christians are inherently iconoclastic. We, we, we get away, we destroy images of the one true God. That's, we inherently do that. Good, 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 good. All right, anything else? So good. No? Yes. That's a good check for me in the when do I become self-righteous about who Christ is and when does that when does that create for me a way of pushing people away from God not bringing them toward him. Yeah. And Kara, I love the way you just phrased that. You you are doing a Pharisee check on your own heart. And what's been a I think one of the ways we can be most pharisaical is in being judgmental of Pharisees. <laughs> it really is amazing how I think often in our society, in the church especially, the most self-righteous people are those denouncing self-righteousness. Man, there's this you bunch of never occurring to them that, wow, maybe I've got all sorts of pharisaical tendencies lurking in my heart that I need to be aware of as well, even in the way I'm at my, I have an attitude toward pharisaical people, right? So that's why I really, in, in pre- preparing for this sermon and preaching it, I said, Lord, please help us feel all the righteous indignation Jesus feels toward the Pharisees, but please also let us see all of that coming our way as well. It's so easy to, to just say, look at those Pharisees, instead of saying, we need to hear Jesus talking to us, not just standing next to Jesus, say, yeah, go get him, Jesus, instead of, right, say, let him, let him um, call us out as well. Okay. Anything? So good. Do this all day. That's what grace groups are for. Just go and keep this going all day. All right, let me make a few points here. I, I, I think this, this contrasting picture Jesus refers to several times here is huge for us. It frames everything else that's going on. And that is this contrast between, as you see in verse 8, for example, the commandment of God versus the tradition of men. This really is the big cage match here. It, it's, Jesus sets up this... this uh, this battle between the commandment of God, the word of God as he has given, and the traditions of men <coughs> that, as we said, can be well-intentioned efforts to keep that, but then end up taking prominence and where people can't even tell the difference. And now Jesus is having to say, no, we need to be able to tell the difference. We need to be able to put the authority in the word of God and maybe even appreciate and value and practice traditions of men right down to let's meet at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. That's a tradition of Grace Fullerton, right? It's a good tradition. It's, I'm really glad that 
we don't say, oh, just we'll meet whenever. No, let's have some tradition in our meeting time, right? Uh, but the minute that starts to take on some sort of hallowed authority where we can't feel the freedom to say, you know, let's make a change to that. And I've seen people in the church get incredibly upset over things that just don't deserve being upset over. And because they don't have authority, they don't have any biblical authority. And so for us to know the difference between God's clear commands and his word and traditions we set up that can be excellent traditions, even reciting the catechism as we've been doing. That's something we decided to do as a tradition for this year. That's a tradition we've instituted, and, and uh, the leadership is doing an excellent job of weaving it in to the services, and, and that's a good thing, and it's well-intentioned. But practices, certain ways of seeking to keep God's word, need to be distinguished from the word itself because pride slips in, distortion slips in, and we end up missing the whole point. And so the, the first main point here is that the Bible is supreme and sufficient. I, I, throughout my life, there are certain doctrines in particular that have become more and more precious to me, and the sufficiency of Scripture is one of those doctrines that I just revel in. I delight in it. I love the sufficiency of Scripture because it's the most freeing thing that the Bible tells me everything I need to know. We all know everything God wants us to know about the most important things. And he hasn't left out anything we, de we deeply need to know, to have relationship with him, to know him truly, to know who we are truly, to know what the purpose of our lives are. That's why if anyone comes with some rule, we can always, like the Bereans, go and say, well, where's that in the scriptures? Just had a conversation a couple weeks ago about altar calls with someone who's convinced that we're just unbiblical because we don't have altar calls every week. And, and, and I said, that's a fine tradition. It's a good practice. But, but man, the guy talks about it like it's, it's got biblical authority for it. And, and so, again, a well-intentioned effort, but not making the distinction here. And so the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture... Is, is massive for us. And that is one of the main things about a Protestant tradition that we're in as, a, as an evangelical free church that is so important that the Reformation, this is one of the main points the Reformation was trying to make, that the traditions of men, the traditions of, of the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation, for instance, started to take on a, a, an equality and then even a prominence over the Bible. And, and so sola scriptura, the Bible alone, the scriptures alone becomes this, this clarion call of the Reformation and making this distinction that Jesus is making here is vital for us. The Bible's supreme and sufficient. And we need new hearts, as Will pointed out, but those new, heart come, new hearts come when the Spirit of God ignites the Word of God in our hearts. And, and that's what we're praying that's happening right now, that the Word of God and the Spirit of God are coming together in our hearts, and in this very moment, the Word of God is bringing us transformation. It's bringing us heart surgery. That's what we need. We need nothing short of heart surgery. The problem is our hearts. The solution needs to be in our hearts, and we go to the Word and depend on the Spirit to use it in our hearts to change us, to bring the heart surgery we all need. Uh, we need new hearts by faith in his word, and that happens fundamentally for us when we find the word Jesus in the word, the Bible. 
Because the Bible's fundamentally teaching us who Jesus is, who the one who fulfills the law is. And so Jesus comes and he brings us righteousness, law keeping to perfection in the place of all our disobedience. And he brings the perfect sacrifice in place of of our inability to make that sacrifice to pay for our sins. And so when we see Jesus as that Savior in that way and depend on him, lean all our weight on him, not just partially, but all our weight on him, we turn from our sin and trust him and we find new life. We find cleansing. We find what we need. So the scriptures become the supreme word of God. It's sort of cool these days to not like the church much, not like the Bible much, but still say you like Jesus and are, are really into Jesus, but just not all that institutional stuff and all that Bible stuff. But Jesus, I'm really into. You, that, Jesus just didn't leave that option open. He really didn't. He grounded his whole life in the scriptures. He was constantly quoting the Bible. He saw his whole life in ministry as a fulfillment of the Bible. He, he was always referring to it as the authority in all these conversations, like he does in this very passage as he's quoting scripture throughout, right? And so you, to love Jesus means to love the word he loved, to love the word he depended on. And so he depends on the Bible too. Bob Sosi, dear brother, dear uh, professor at Talbot Seminary where, where I'm on the faculty. And, um, and Bob Sosi taught 54 years at Talbot. He died just a few weeks ago uh, at 84. And listen to this, this great quotation from one of Bob's books on the Bible. He says, our faith in Jesus is intrinsically linked to our faith in the truthfulness of the Bible. If we believe the Bible's record of Christ, that he is who he said he is, namely the very revelation of God, the truth incarnate, then we must accept him as our authoritative teacher in all things, including the nature of the Bible. To love Jesus means to have his doctrine of scripture as our doctrine of scripture. And that is the authoritative supreme word of God that everything else submits to. Now, now there are traditions, like we said in the Reformation, who affirm tradition really on an equal plane with scripture. And that, I think, is something Jesus is speaking directly to here. Not that long ago, the Roman Catholic Church once again reaffirmed its belief that divine revelation of the gospel is transmitted, this is a quote, uh, in two forms, sacred scripture and the teaching tradition of the church. This is a really good reason to be a Protestant. Um, I, I'm unapologetically Protestant, and this is one of the main reasons because scripture needs to always be the ultimate authority. That doesn't mean it's ever interpreted in a vacuum or that we don't wonderfully benefit from tradition, but constantly scrutinizing that tradition according to the scriptures. The Eastern Orthodox Church as well uh, has a belief that doctrinal definitions of the councils are equally infallible and authoritative as scripture itself. This is a really good reason to be Protestant. Uh, proudly Protestant. And so uh, this, th now, now all Protestants certainly don't hold to the Bible and many Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox hold to the Bible better than a lot of Protestants do. So that's, but, but we're talking in doctrine, in, in statements made. Uh, and in contemporary uh, Christianity, you get all sorts of 
views that trump the Bible. So many things trump the Bible. Uh, constantly. Let's talk. What, what are some things you think uh, are trumping the Bible even in the church? Even if it's not in a tradition that actually comes out and explicitly says there are things that are equal with and may even trump the Bible, what, what, are, what are other things that, that we need to think, okay, even in, even in a tradition that doesn't do that, what are things that may end up trumping the Bible? What do you think? Gut feelings. Gut feelings, yes, Lily. I, boy, I wonder if that's not the main one. The biggest thing that, and, and what's crazy about the gut feelings is how I think so many cultural factors have given us a lot of affirmation to go down that road, starting with Disney movies. My goodness, the, the whole follow your heart, be true to yourself, find whatever is stirring in you and be that, do that, follow that. <gasps> you know, I, I, it, it, that's Disney, right? And this idea that, no, I find in myself something that needs to be killed, right? The gospel assumes this. But, guys, I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but this is absolutely true. If I always followed my heart, I'd be in jail. I'd be in jail right now, probably for the rest of my life. And, and I'm so glad God enables me not to always follow what's naturally coming from my gut feelings. And people increasingly, even in the church, even faculty members I'll interview at Biola, feel a lot of freedom to just say, well, God can't be that way. If God's that way, I can't serve him. And Christians feel a lot of freedom to say, well, well, the God I know would never send anybody to hell. Sorts, these sorts of things where you decide ahead of time what God needs to be like, and it's according to your gut. It's not submitting my gut to revelation. It's just going to revelation with my gut as supreme. My, my intuitive sense of what must be right becomes king and the authority of my life, instead of constantly crushing those idols, as Melissa said, that aren't the truth and replacing them with the truth that comes from God's word. Yes, 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 yes. Good, what else? Other things that trump the Bible, what do you think? I, I would, Jack. I would just add to what Lily said. It's distressing that the best-selling book amongst evangelical Christianity, or Christians, supports that. Very view. Oh yeah. I've got, got feelings. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Scripture kind of tagged on, but got feelings. Right, and even using scripture to affirm the supremacy of feelings. Yeah, instead of always not not ignoring feelings, not saying, "Well, it's not about feelings." No, it is. But it's about having our feelings transformed by our minds being transformed according to the Word of God. Let's not swing in the pendulum and say feelings don't matter. But feelings will lead us in all sorts of horrible directions. But the feelings need to be changed. My affections need to be transformed by the word of God as it transforms my thinking. Good. Yeah, good, Matt. If you go too far to the other direction, you can end up with those social conventions that aren't there. It's easier to look back 50 years, like don't play cards, don't go right, to right, right. bowling alleys, those dens of iniquity. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I actually wish bowling alleys had more ritual cleansings that, than they do. Uh, but, but yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, how about culture itself? I think sort of, well, this is the way it's going. This is where the culture is. This is how things are changing. We, we put our fingers to the air, testing where the winds are coming from, and we base our beliefs and feelings based on what the really latest opinion poll says. 
and culture ends up trumping things. Listen to uh, Rob Bell, a highly influential preacher who just a few weeks ago was interviewed by Oprah. He's actually touring with Oprah. He had a, he, he had a great ministry for quite a while, but, but it's really gone away from where I think Jesus is having us think this morning. Uh, listen to what Rob Bell says, speaking about um, same-sex marriage. He says, the church, a church um, that doesn't support same-sex marriage will continue to be even more irrelevant. He says, Christianity is evolving and, that, and many Christians have already opened their hearts to the idea that two people of the same sex would choose a, to journey together. In fact, he says, the church's acceptance of gay marriage is inevitable. I think culture is, there it is, is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant. And then listen, here's the key quote. When it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you Flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors and they love each other and just want to go through life. So, so do you see that you're quoting letters from 2,000 years ago when your immediate experience and the culture is telling you that they're not true anymore? See, that's the bottom line here. And so culture, our gut, uh, some traditions teach us this, but Jesus is coming and saying, no, the scriptures, the commandments of God need to be supreme. They need to do everything right. Now, the next point, so the Bible supreme and our authority. Two, and this is a really important point here, and we're so ready after our time of worship to hear this. There's something actually, as much as they disagree on, there's something Jesus and the Pharisees completely agree on. They're completely on the same page with one thing in here. They, they disagree on on how you solve this, but what's, what's the one thing they agree on? Did you see it? What would you say it is? God is holy. Oh, God is holy, and therefore what's true of us? We need cleansing, exactly. Pharisees and Jesus have no disagreement on our need for cleansing. He, he's on the same page. He says, he's not saying, how dare you say people are dirty. That's putting burdens on them. No, he's saying you're just not removing their dirtiness in the right way. It's not accomplishing what you need. And so they agree on our sinfulness. They agree on our need for cleansing. And again, let me, let me quote Rob Bell how unpopular this is. She asked him, um, and he's highly influential in, in many movements of the church today. That's why I'm quoting him. And, and uh, she says, what's the one thing you know for sure in this interview? And he said that we're all going to be okay. It's the one thing he knows for sure. And I just immediately thought of the prophet saying, you say peace, peace when there is no peace. You say we're all clean and we're all going to be fine when we're not. You're not telling the truth. And people don't like the truth, but we need to tell them the truth anyway. The Bible says things like the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. The Bible says things like this in Isaiah 64. We all who have become like one who's unclean and all our, all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. In the New Testament, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we don't like this teaching of our sinfulness, of our dirtiness, but we've got to face it. I think if more churches... Spend time in corporate worship like we did this morning. We would get the gospel a million times better than we do. I don't know if you noticed, but this morning was a heavy dose of total depravity. It was a heavy dose of our sinfulness. Not pulling any punches. 
about our sinful condition. Man, some of these adjectives we sang about ourselves this morning are just powerful and chilling. And, and really the antidote for a self-help kind of gospel that misses the real problem. And Jesus and the, and the Pharisees agree that the problem is, is, is terrible and it's that we need cleansing. And sometimes it takes something like World War II or September 11th to remind us, oh yeah, evil exists and sin's a problem and we can't just fix it with more political solutions or, or more education or government solutions or, or we need a savior. We need something different. You know, there was this shift um, for a couple of hundred years away from God, away from scripture, especially among intellectuals. And a bunch of British intellectuals who had become atheists were just uh, shaken out of that by the events of World War II. And there was this, this movement back to theism and even Christianity among a lot of these intellectuals in Europe. Listen to one of them, C.E.M. Jode, as he went from being an atheist back to believing in God because of the events of the Holocaust and World War II. In his book, Back to Belief, he says this, it is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the political left were always being disappointed. This is hilarious, listen. They were always disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable. <laughs> by the subservience of the intellect to emotion, by the failure of true socialism to arrive, by the behavior of nations and politicians, by the masses' preference for Hollywood to Shakespeare and for Mr. Sinatra to Beethoven. Above all, by the recurrent fact of war. They just couldn't get around human evil and, and it drove them back to solutions that weren't just band-aids on the problem. So we really need cleansing. And the third thing I hope you see is we can't cleanse ourselves. We try to feel clean in all sorts of ways. We try religion, we try politics, we try social action, we try self-help, we try self-esteem movements and what they teach. We find our meaning in culture, in our association with it. How, how up are on you on who, who the latest celebrity is dating right now? This, it, it, you, and, and so we start to then live vicariously through celebrities. And we find our meaning through actually knowing what's going on in their lives and it's just empty. It doesn't add up to anything. Listen to a woman who worked for uh, Adolescent Girl magazines. Yes. Do you read those? I do. Um, I like to keep up on what's going on among adolescent girls since I have two. Um, so this woman, uh, she, she worked, uh, Christina Kelly is her name, with L Girl, uh, YM Jane, and the magazine Sassy. Her whole career was working for magazines like this with names like Sassy. And, and so listen, listen to what she says. He says, why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. Wow. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done, we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted liposuction stars, you would have to believe, be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential, but doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. 
I'm part of this whole process as an editor, she says. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. <laughs> Is that amazing? She sees it's empty. It's not getting us anywhere. We need new hearts. That's what Ezekiel 36 says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And we need Jesus to give us this new heart and make us clean. That's what he does for us. Would you flip back again to, to Zechariah? I'm not sure the last time you were in Zechariah. It's right near the end of the Bible. It's next to last book of the Bible here. And, and we find this amazing picture of this priest on the Day of the Atonement in Zechariah 3. Watch what happens. Remember these priests go through these ritual cleansings. They have to have these perfectly cleansed garments. Their hands, their feet, their bodies. Everything needs to be perfectly cleansed to offer this sacrifice. And Zechariah gets this vision. Zechariah 3, watch. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. So God shows him this vision. Joshua the high priest. Standing before the angel of the Lord. Has to be on the day of atonement here. The high priest offering sacrifice. And then skip down to verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Even the high priest with all his religious cleansings is still in a filthy state. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments of him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And how does that happen? Look at verse eight. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, the Messiah, God's agent who comes and brings our cleansing for behold on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord of hosts and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day oh glory to God that's amazing mercy that's what he did with Jesus when Jesus the high priest Joshua means the savior right the one who saves. He comes and on a single day lays down his life, is declared dirty so we could be clean, is declared sinful so that we could be forgiven. That's what happens. And that's how we see all of human history ending as well. Flip all the way now to the end of human history in Revelation 19 and we see the way it all culminates with Jesus, this great high priest, this great savior saving us with his own blood. Watch Revelation 19.6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Oh, he comes and he makes his bride clean. She was dressed with nothing but filthy garments. But this Savior comes and he gives us his clean garments so we could stand before a holy God. 
That's the great news. What are you depending on this morning? Is it religion? Is it good religious rule keeping? Is it, is it your gut? What are you depending on? Your, your accomplishments, your achievements, your success in business, or your career in athletics a long time ago maybe, or uh, your, your bright prospect? Are you depending on that degree you're about to get or maybe won't get? Or are you depending on that perfect spouse or the children you'll have one day or the career? What is it? What is it that is driving your association with important celebrities or people that you think are significant? Where does your sense of being clean come from? It has to come from Jesus. It has to come from the Savior who alone can take away our filth. Um, let's, let's spend some time in prayer. W- would a few of you pray uh, as we close now? Let, would, would some of you, in light of what we've talked about, uh, take us before the throne?